you've got about a million, two million, three square feet of, of retail. It's just simply more than the market needs. Uh, the, the market probably, you know, in our mind needs three or 400,000 feet total plus some hospitality. Uh, and I think you end up with a richer retail environment. Uh, it's better to have less that is doing better than more that's doing poorly. Because the, the more they're doing poorly just puts stress on each of the business owners. But if we can reduce the footprint, but have the better quality operators be the ones who thrive and survive, then I think the whole, the whole built environment gets improved upon. I think that many of those products that you used to go to the mall to buy, they're being, they're being sold online today. Not that everybody's 100% aligned, but there are enough of us buying online to put pressure on those retailers to consolidate. Uh, you know, you just saw the Bed Bath and Beyond bankruptcy recently. You know, so I think it's it's re-envisioning what the success of retail is going to be. We we, we actually are, are not negative about retail. We just think retail needs to be re-envisioned. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct. I'm Isabella Farr, and today I'm actually hosting by myself while Susanna is on vacation for the week. Today, we're digging into shopping centers and how many developers are taking advantage of older, less profitable malls and converting them into mixed-use properties. Think housing, newer retail, restaurants, walkable. And one of these developers is Bill Shopoff. He's the head of Shopoff Realty Investments based in Irvine, California. And he's in the process of developing a number of these projects at a time when many California cities really do need more housing. So we'll jump into that interview a bit later. But for now, the top news of this week. First, rent stabilization is heading to the U.S. Supreme Court. New York's Rent Stabilization Association, the Community Housing Improvement Program, and some other individual landlords sued over 2019 rent stabilization state law, claiming it violated due process rights and deprived property owners of the right to possess, use, and dispose of property. But since then, courts have shut down the legal challenge. The groups have now asked the Supreme Court to review it. The petition itself was interesting. The groups basically asked the courts why they were being forced to provide, quote, public assistance to tenants through offering low rents, lease renewals, and succession rights. They basically said, why is it on us? The Supreme Court can obviously choose not to hear the case. It actually only reviews about 100 to 150 of the more than 7,000 petitions it gets every year. We've been speaking a lot about how owners of rent-stabilized buildings in New York City are facing distress, but there was actually one deal this week that was pretty notable. Mo Vaughn's firm, Omni, sold a 12,000-unit portfolio of affordable units to Nuveen, the large asset management firm. It's basically its entire portfolio. The units are spread across the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens, as well as some other states. The price of the deal hasn't been disclosed, but Nuveen has said that the sale has doubled its affordable housing assets under management to $6.4 billion. So we know it's a hefty sum. And while we're on the topic of rent control in New York, the city's Rent Guidelines Board had a pretty wild meeting last week. The city's Rent Guidelines Board is considering a rental increase. 
but throughout the meeting, tenants and tenant advocates called for a rent decrease, drowning out the board with chants and jeers. Activists and city council members actually climbed on stage and asked for a rent rollback. Basically, there was a lot of theatrical chanting going on. The meeting ended with a preliminary vote for a 2 to 5% annual increase on one-year rent-stabilized apartment leases and 4 to 7% on two-year leases. But both tenants and landlords were not exactly happy with that outcome. The board staff had actually originally suggested an 8.5% hike on one-year leases. That would have made landlords much happier, but tenants had pushed for an even lower annual increase. On to the commercial front, Abby Rosen has scored an extension on a $1 billion mortgage connected to the Seagram building that's at 375 Park Avenue in New York City. And the extension is notable. His firm, RSR Realty, wasn't able to refinance the loan, but it was able to avoid default by kicking the can down the road. One source said it was a multi-year extension, so Rosen has basically bought himself some time. It was one of the largest office loans coming due this year, so obviously the industry was watching pretty closely to see what would happen in an environment where rates have made refinancings a little more rare than usual. Down to South Florida, two of our senior reporters, Keith Larson and Catherine Kalurgis, had this great story about Nir Mayer, the developer behind the now-failed HVZ Capital Group. Mayer is claiming he's basically broke now. In court filings, he disclosed that he has $5,000 in his bank account and has been staying at a friend's house. HVZ imploded about three years ago after lenders foreclosed on a number of the firm's properties. And after that, a number of creditors have gone after Mayer, saying he splurged on chartering private yachts and jets, fine wines. One even said he had more than $1.5 million worth of gold. And of course, all of this is existing while these creditors are saying that he owes them money. It's definitely a story worth reading, especially for those who've been following HVZ's collapse. And our last story involves a bank we seemingly love to talk about on this show. It's one that everyone's been following for a few weeks now. The collapsed First Republic. One of our reporters in New York, Harrison Connery, found out that the bank's low-cost mortgage program is likely dead. First Republic had been offering below-market mortgage rates to those in certain areas through its so-called Eagle Community Home Loan Program. The bank offered it to people at all income levels, but said it designed the program to help Black, Hispanic, Latino, and Asian communities, especially those with low to moderate income levels. They would qualify if the mortgage was under $1.4 million and if it was for an owner-occupied property, so you were going to live in it. So those buyers will now have to apply for new mortgages. The question is, where will they go now? And who will fill that gap? So, Bill, thank you. Thank you for coming on. First, you know, Shop Off Realty Investments has done a lot of work around, you know, building apartments in malls, which is what we're here to talk about today. Can you talk about why you're looking at these conversions and redevelopment projects, building and adding apartments at big retail centers? What is driving this need? Well, it's a couple of things. First of all, you've got the state of California has their allocation of new housing needs. 
that there's a, a supply demand imbalance in a, in a number of the communities that we do business in. And so these are really just opportunities to fill that, that demand. And these are the easiest parcels in our mind, the, the areas to get the most scale. Because Orange County is largely built out in, in many other markets that we're working in are largely built out. So to find a, a, a significant parcel of land that might be available for redevelopment. And, and, and clearly at some of these, they've passed their prime as retail opportunities, but they're in great locations. And so that great location just needs to be re-envisioned as something else. Got it. So speaking of location, there's been a lot of talk about building like a new form of suburb, right? Like you have like closer to city centers, there's it's more walkable, more amenities. I guess, you know, this is where it's heading in terms of mixed use development. We're seeing retail plus apartments plus entertainment and restaurants and all of this kind of more condensed. Is this something that you're envisioning? Yeah, I think it becomes a little bit of an, a, a, an urban suburban environment. You're bringing some of the things from a, from a more urban environment to the, to the clientele, to the, to the ultimate residents and, the, and the, those who, who partake in the, in the retail and entertainment. You know, in an example like our Westminster Mall project, you've got about a million, two million, three square feet of, of retail. It's just simply more than the market needs. The, the market probably, you know, in our mind needs three or 400,000 feet total plus some hospitality. Uh, and I think you end up with a richer retail environment. Uh, it's better to have less that is doing better than more that's doing poorly because the, the more they're doing poorly just puts stress on each of the business owners. But if we can reduce the footprint, but have the better quality operators be the ones who thrive and survive, then I think the whole the whole built environment gets improved upon. Can you talk about the retailers that are thriving? I know that grocery has done particularly well, you know, niche, more niche retailers. Can you talk about, I guess, some of the more specific types of retail that are doing well? Well, grocery's done very well. Um, food, uh, both quick service, but really probably more than quick service has been some of the higher end restaurants have done very well uh, in the you know, what I'll call the post-COVID, I don't know we're out of COVID, but since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, people people determined that, uh, you know, they'll support uh, higher-end restaurants. I think, you know, I'll call restaurants and slash entertainment, other types of entertainment that may fall within that. I think it's experiential retail versus, you know, goods retail. I think, you know, not that there will be no, you know, no goods and services that, you know, no goods that you can buy, but I think that, Many of those products that you used to go to the mall to buy, they're being they're being sold online today. Not that everybody's one hundred percent aligned, but there are enough of us buying online to put pressure on those retailers to consolidate. Uh, you know, you just saw the Bed Bath and Beyond bankruptcy recently. You know, so I think it's it's re envisioning what the success of retail is going to be. We we, we actually. Are, are not negative about retail. We just think retail needs to be re-envisioned. Uh, but, we, but we think it needs to be re-envisioned with, you know, a, a both a for rent and for sale product, bringing, you know, homeowners and, and, and residents at, at new apartment buildings into a new environment where uh, they can all cohabit together. And there's a synergy amongst those various people. Uh, the, the, the residents of the apartments and the, and the houses are there to support the retailers, 
and the retailers are providing amenity uh, of sorts to the to the residents. I'm glad that you brought up Bed Bath and Beyond because I think you know what you're saying about retail needing to be re envisioned. When Bed Bath and Beyond you know went bankrupt, I was so upset, and then I realized I don't know the last time I actually went into a Bed Bath and Beyond, even though I used to like it a lot. But anything. I've gone to Amazon. <laughs> that might be one of the few stores I go to on occasion. Just such a broad <laughs> array of things that you that you, need, that you need. I know. Did you use your? Did you use up your coupons? Did you go back? <laughs> uh, you know, I think coupons are going to bite the dust. So, you know, I think that the world is evolving. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's going away. Um, you know, my, my, I, have, I have a number of friends that are strictly focused on the retail business and, and their centers are doing well. So I, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's getting quality. It's, but, but I think in the circumstances that we've been involved in, you know, on, on several opportunities so far, we think that they're the right time. We've been able to align with the city's desire to bring housing into these areas. Um, and so we're not leading the charge. We're really kind of following the example of the communities. Uh, where, where, the, where the electeds and the appointed officials are making a decision that they want to bring housing into these communities and, you know, re, revamp and re-envision what is just really now kind of a particularly like the enclosed malls. And not all enclosed malls are, are, are failures. You know, some of them are doing quite well. Uh, we, we bought in one in Northern California and the mall itself is doing well. We just bought one of the anchors that was, was it's over anchored today. There's, there's not real demand for that anchor, so it needs to be something else and, and, and bring some life into that segment of the mall and bring some new customers to the mall. Are there certain malls where I've been looking at a lot of concerns around office to residential conversions, but I was wondering if there are certain malls where residential makes more sense and where it might not make more sense. Can you talk about the, you know, the kind of challenges there? Well, I think it's just, you know, is there an underlying demand? You know, is there a need for more housing? That's your that's your starting point. You know, is there a need for it? Is there support for it? Uh, can you work through the issues with the other retailers, with the you know the typical REAs or CCNRs that govern the retail environment, the mall environment? But uh, you know, look, a, a, a mall that has available space but no demand, or or the value of the of the land or the building is more than you know, a development site is worth doesn't make much sense. But if you can buy land for less than, you know, I can buy land and building in an existing building uh, for less than I think the fair value of that land is, then it makes sense for me to participate there. Uh, so it's, 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 is there a need that we can fill at a, at a rational market value? That's the, that's the beginning point of the discussion. So just because there's a mall there, um, you know, doesn't mean we're looking at it. We've looked at a lot of them. And, and I think it's the same as the office to, to residential conversion. Because we're not talking about conversion, by the way. We're talking about demolition and redevelopment. Whereas in the office, you're hearing some people talking about adaptive reuse. But, but I think what you're going to find is it's a very small percentage of the office buildings that are actually functioning for that adaptive reuse. So you talked before about, you know, we're in a different environment than we were when COVID first started. But how has the pandemic changed your investment strategy? Well, we're, we try to be uh, flexible. I mean, it probably what's changed our investment strategy more than the pandemic is now. 
you know, a, a pretty rapid shift in interest rates. Uh, so it's, it's uh, adjusted our exit valuation. So that has to adjust, you know, our entry points into, into many assets. But, you know, look, the, the housing market, people spent money on housing during the pandemic. I, you know, you saw this rapid rise in, in both rents and home prices. Our, our sense is it's not sustainable. And so we're, we've not underwritten the full impact of that into our current transactions. So sometimes we get beat out on it by somebody who's uh, candidly more aggressive than we are in how they see the trajectory. They, they may see the trend line continuing and we may see, you know, a flattening or even a pullback in, in uh, sale prices or rental values, uh, depending on the submarket. And speaking of interest rates, obviously, again, we're in a very, very different rate environment now than we were a year ago. Um, and the Fed has just raised interest rates again by a quarter of a percentage point. How are you thinking about financing and refinancing and getting construction loans right now? Well, it's, it's way more challenging than it was 24 months ago or even 12 months ago. Um, you know, we're thinking that we have to pay less for the land because the finished product is going to be worth less because of higher interest cost and probably a higher cap rate on the exit. So it's just, it's just impacting the kind of the, the whole formula of how we think about a new project. And I think furthermore, it's, it's where is the capital want to go today is, is there's a fair amount of capital that's thinking, you know, there may be some distress in the marketplace. And so they may want to hold their capital and, and wait for that distress. And so, you know, we're certainly looking at those opportunities as well, you know, coupled with some new development projects, which are out in the horizon. We're not, we're not ready to break ground on anything today. We're, we're, you know, 25 at the earliest on most of our projects. So, you know, our, our expectation is that the market will come back to some degree of stability in that time period. Uh, if we if we're going to have a recession, you know, hopefully that recession is, you know, moving in the right direction by the end of that time period. Um, and we could be first in line to fill the need as people come back in, in, in housing formation, uh, you know, recalibrates. Got it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So you're not, you know, has it changed your decision at all to move on a construction project? Has it, you know? Not really, because we really weren't in the position to go vertical today on most of our sites. Uh, we're under construction on a few things. And, uh, you know, they've been impacted largely, largely doing okay, largely doing well. Uh, we bought out our projects at a decent time. So costs were tolerably, you know, they were acceptable. Um, but I think that, um, you know, it's just making us more thoughtful as we're looking at new sites and new opportunities uh, and, and making sure that we can execute a business plan that, um, you know, fits with where we think the, the market's going to be, where it is today and where we think it's going to be. I think it, it's, it can't just be about where it is today. You got to think about where demand is going to be, where competing supply is going to be. And, and can you fill a niche that's not being filled by somebody uh faster, better, cheaper. Got it. That makes sense. Um, obviously, you know, California is in a housing crisis. We need, you know, more housing in the state. Um, can you talk about, you know, how that conversation has kind of, you know, 
pushed I guess how do I phrase this I'm you know thinking about how you know there's been such an awareness for the need for new housing how has that affected you guys you know is it easier to build is it still difficult how are you thinking about it it's it's gotten somewhat easier to get entitlements to get project approvals but I wouldn't say massively so it's just it's just at the margin uh, you know we've had we had a couple situations recently where the cities have taken been proactive on on doing the new zoning um, so yeah it's, it's gotten easier um, and I, but I think you know California has a housing shortage it's not just a housing shortage it's also we have a housing affordability issue. So we could continue to build nothing but luxury apartments and, and, and million dollar homes. That alone will not solve the housing problem. It will help because it, because more units helps drive, you know, not necessarily values down, but slowing appreciation. Um, But I think that, uh, you know, it's a bigger, it's not a simple solution. Uh, we are adding affordable housing into our projects, uh, so that that's helping kind of balance who's going to who's going to live there and and uh, providing some housing for some people that need housing. So I, I think we're you know we're we're trying to work with it. We're trying to work within the guidelines. We have a whole uh, business strategy working on workforce housing. So we're not just trying to solve at the luxury end. A lot of our product is luxury, but we think we need to solve across all spectrums. How do you, I actually, I wrote a story about workforce housing, I think probably a year or so ago. How do you, you know, make it pencil out from a financial standpoint? Well, you know, it's just got to, it's got to manage costs and it's just making sure that we're, uh, we're buying well-located sites. Uh, we've got a product design that we think provides an affordability in, in a high bedroom count solution uh, versus, you know, an absolute low rent. Uh, we're able to house more people, you know, per unit and that we think brings affordability, you know, in, in line or it helps it. Uh, but there's no magic formula. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a tough slog. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have an idea or guest you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're actually going to chat about rent stabilization in New York City and why some landlords are facing distress on these properties. Tune in then.